reaching from something that you have to turn a thousand pages to get to. <laughs> I grew up in Alabama, and I don't, you know, I don't know if we could count that high, but I knew where it was. So, so we found it. That has nothing to do with anything. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time. We thank you for your word and pray that your spirit would be with us as we read your word and apply it to our lives, that we'd bear the fruit of righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the reading today, it, it starts just like this. My friends, if you have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you won't treat some people better than others. What, what James is getting at in this section of the epistle, he raises it in a lot of different sections uh, of, of his very short letter. Modern people, they might call that bias, which might also be described as prejudice. James, James calls it being a, an unfair judge. But what this is, is an unreasoned attitude of hostility directed at another person or another group of people based off of supposed characteristics. Nobody wants to admit bias. No one wants to admit to being a crooked judge. That's James's language for it. No one wants to say, I'm biased, I'm prejudiced, I'm a crooked judge. No one wants to admit in the sense that they hold unreasoned and unwarranted and even unjust sinful hostility towards other people. But it seems that bias is nearly a universal human problem shared by not just folks out there, but folks in here. You know, Albert Einstein, he was a full-time physicist and a part-time philosopher of the human condition. And this is what he said. Common sense is nothing other than a collection of prejudices arrived at by the age of 18. Conservatives might argue with heartfelt sincerity that progressives are anti-American political agents and intentionally seeking to ruin the country from within. Progressives might argue that conservatives are misogynistic, knuckle-dragging racists. If you get either one of them alone in a situation where they feel safe, where they have permission to speak their mind, they will make those kinds of claims as if they are facts as indisputable as gravity. In other words, the bias will be sold under a bill of common sense, something any decent, reasonable person would believe. <clears throat> it's not common sense. It's prejudice described as common sense. It's bias in a Halloween costume. It's a collection of prejudices arrived at by the age of 18, and James is pretty clear that people who have been redeemed by God, who've been made into new creatures, are not to have the kind of common sense that Einstein spoke about. You cannot, after all, love your neighbor if you have an unreasoned, unwarranted, even unjust, hostile attitude toward them. So how do we root this sin out of our life? How do we make sure we can live into the fullness of what God has calling us to be as a community and as people redeemed by Him. That's what I want to talk with you about this morning. James chapter 2, verse 1 to 17. So much in that little section. We can't comment on all of it, but we do want to narrow the remarks to what's most beneficial for rooting this thing out of our life. Here's the first thing to be aware of. Rather than eliminating bias and prejudice from our lives in general, James encourages us to begin at a very specific place. 
with a very specific group of people. This is picking up in verse 2. Suppose a rich person wearing fancy clothes and a gold ring comes to one of your meetings. Now, I don't have to worry about that because we baptized 10 cadets in a river in Bluffton just a week ago. I'll put the pictures up soon. And somebody said, it looked like someone escaped from prison and drowned kids in the creek. And they thought that meant. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about such uh, favoritism being directed my way. Suppose a poor person dressed in worn-out clothes also comes. You must not give the best seat to the one in fancy clothes and tell the one who's poor to stand at the side or sit on the floor. That's the same as saying that some people are better than others. You'd be acting like a crooked judge. So the place to begin, this is James' advice. We all have bias. We all have prejudice. That's an important thing to, to just begin with. When we confess our sins together in a moment, I had somebody come up to me in church once and say, you know, I really hate that we confess our sins every week. Because, uh, because you know, I, I, I don't do that kind of thing. I'm a good person. Well, we didn't get too deep into that. <laughs> but, you know, the, 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 one of the many great problems with Adolf Hitler is Hitler's not sitting behind a desk, agonizing. Am I doing the right thing here? Am I doing the right thing? Is this the right course of action to commit myself to? It's not bad to be suspicious of yourself. Often, bad people lack self-suspicion. So it's okay for you and I to be suspicious of ourselves. It's okay for you and I to be suspicious of our moral intentions. James is inviting you to be suspicious of your moral intentions. And he's asking you to be suspicious of your moral intentions towards a very specific group of people. And those people are the poor. Now, I don't believe the poor are subject to more prejudice than, say, a political conservative or a progressive. But the poor, this is the key thing, the poor don't have their own news network. The poor don't have politicians that speak for them. The poor don't have people that earnestly represent them. The poor don't have money to defend themselves or hire advocates. The poor don't often have friends in high places. So the poor feel the weight of this universal human problem in ways that you and I might not be subjected to. They feel the gravity of it definitely more than I do. And I'd wager more than you do. So how does this happen? Well, let me give you an example. Two years ago, a San Francisco tech entrepreneur, he penned an open letter, you might have seen it, to the mayor of San Francisco, Ed Lee, and his chief of police, Greg Sir. And in the letter, the concerned citizen expressed his, this is a quote, <clears throat> concern and outrage over the increasing homeless and drug problem that the city's faced with. Now the concern wasn't that there were people in need of shelter or addicts in need of treatment. The concern was that this person had to see homeless people. Quote, the wealthy working people have earned their right to live in the city. They went out, got an education, worked hard and earned it. Listen to this. I shouldn't have to see the pain, struggle and despair of homeless people to and from my way to work. Shouldn't have to see it. He then goes on to suggest the mayor should eliminate the population by removing them, relocating them to a different city. That's actually a pretty common solution. I don't know if you knew that. It's a pretty common solution. When Michael Bloomberg was the mayor of New York City, he arrested the homeless and allocated city funds to buy them one-way tickets out of the city. It's just removal. Elimination is the strategy, you see. 
And so there's a burden and a gravity and a weight that is put upon vulnerable people. And if they don't have friends in high places, they can just get pushed out, you see. Christians might feel a sense of moral superiority here. Studies have shown Christians are more likely to be engaged in civic activity, including care for the poor. That doesn't mean prejudice doesn't happen in the church. I'm sure many of you know what Gandhi said about his characterization of Christianity. He said, uh, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. They're so unlike your Christ. And I don't know if you're familiar with what that characterization sprung from, the experience that he had that led him to that conviction. He was practicing law in South Africa, and he found his way into the New Testament. And he began to read about Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, and he was captivated by the man Jesus Christ. And so he found his way to a church one Sunday morning, and he was greeted at the door by a, uh, an usher, and the usher said, what do you think you're doing here, Kafir? I don't know if you know what that word means. It's a word I couldn't say in South Africa because it's a, it's a racial slur used during apartheid. I'd like to attend worship here, is what Gandhi said. There's no room for kafirs in this church. Get out of here, or I'll have my assistants throw you down the steps. So the, the strategy is elimination. Let's prevent them from coming, and if they're here, let's make sure we remove them. I've seen it in Myrtle Beach. I've seen it in downtown Charleston. Churches actively preventing homeless from coming in the building. I've seen it many, many times. Prejudice towards this group of people James is concerned about, it can happen in San Francisco, it can happen in Mount Pleasant, it can happen in the church. And wherever it happens, and however it happens, and whoever does it, James wants us to know that it's always sin. So how do we root this out of our lives? We, we begin by looking at a very specific group of people. And we think about how this group of people is treated by us as individuals and as a community. And then we acknowledge that uh, if there's prejudice or bias towards this community, that, that it is sin. So why, why is it sin? In terms of the way James understands it, well, James puts it like this in verse 8. You'll do okay if you obey the most important law in the scriptures. It's the law that commands us to love others as much as we love ourselves. But if you treat some people better than others, you've done wrong. The scriptures teach that you have sinned. <clears throat> the law that James is referring to is what some people call a summary of the law. James is the brother of Jesus, and I, I bet he was there when a religious leader in Jesus' community came up to him and asked him, Teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law? And, uh, and Jesus replies with these words, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first great commandment. The second is just as important. Love others as much as you love yourself. All the law of Moses and the books of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Now, Jesus gives us a very simple way to think through how we can please God, and how we can live according to uh, God's law and God's uh, hopes for us. I don't want people to have unreasoned, unwarranted, unjust hostility towards me. I don't want that for my life. 
I don't want people to say they shouldn't have to see my pain. I don't want people to say they shouldn't have to see my despair and my struggle. I don't want people to actively seek to remove me from the community. If such began to happen to me, I would want someone to help me. I would want someone to advocate for me. I would want a powerful friend to take an interest in my plight. Now, Jesus teaches us that what love requires is that I have the same wants for other people that I have for myself. So if I'm to love the way Jesus teaches me to love, I will not want other people, anyone. But James says, let's, let's start with the poor. I would not want other people, particularly the poor and vulnerable in our community, to experience unreasoned and unwarranted and unjust hostility. I don't want that for them. If I'm to love the way Jesus teaches me to love, I will not want others, particularly the poor and the vulnerable, to be offensive in the sight of others. I will not want them to experience what it feels like for people to actively seek their removal from a community. If I'm to love other people the way I love myself, I would want them to have a helper and a friend and an advocate. This is how Jesus teaches us that love is fulfilled in our life and in the lives of others. There's a danger here, by the way. There's a big danger here. It's the danger that we will view people, the poor and the vulnerable, as objects of our charity, rather than as objects of our love. Sometimes they go together, but it's important that we distinguish between an object of charity and an object of love. Howard Thurman, wonderful book, Jesus and the Disinherited, quoted it to you before. Uh, he warned that Christians can be tempted to treat certain populations as objects of what he called missionary endeavor without being willing to treat them as brothers or human beings. I saw this play out in real time in Myrtle Beach. We lived in Myrtle Beach for six years, by the way. It has the largest concentration of homelessness in the state, largest concentration of drug addiction in the state. I was director of a church in Myrtle Beach, and the, the church we had maintained three commitments, and commitment number one was the doors always open to everyone. And you'd be surprised what kind of resistance you can bump into when you have the door open to everyone. The second rule was this, if we had money to assist people, we would. The third rule was actually the most important one. Everyone would have a conversation with a minister on staff who came through the door. Everyone. Now you might wonder why, why, why the third one? Why does everybody get a conversation? Well. This is what we learned by doing this in Myrtle Beach. What we learned by doing this in Myrtle Beach was there was a community that was ready to help the, the, the poor and the homeless and the drug addicted with money, ready to help them with food, ready to help them with shelter. And once those gifts were distributed, the, the charitable people, good people, would, would move on to the next agenda item on their list. And what we discovered by working with this community for six years is they were used to people giving them things, but they were not used to people talking to them. They were not used to people eating with them. They were not used to people drinking coffee with them. They were not used to being allowed to tell their story, and they were not used to hearing the stories of other people. 
And that's where we learned as, as a church, and my friend and I had to repent of this. That's where we learned we were treating a, the, the community as objects of missionary endeavor. But we weren't treating them as brothers. We weren't treating them as human beings. You know, one thing we would do is we were so happy to feed them at the church, but we were pretty reluctant for them to feed us. Out in the woods, over the campfire, with a can of beans. And so that was something we started. If they invited us to dinner, that was something we started to do. And that's just an example of what it, what it means to treat people as a human being rather than an object of charity. And now we have a, a deeper understanding of what it means to love people the way that we want to be loved. Because I don't want you uh, to only look at me. If, if I'm ever in a situation where, where I'm impoverished, and there are many ways to be impoverished, but if I am impoverished, I don't want you merely to look at me uh, as someone in pain and despair and struggle that needs relief. I don't want you merely to go through the list of what does Rob need to be relieved of his pain and struggle and despair, but I want you to also look at me as a brother and a human being, someone who, uh, who can befriend you and share life with you. And we have communities that are looking for the exact same thing. But these communities are rarely treated as human beings, as brothers, as sisters. If I love others as I love myself, I need to admit help's not the only thing I want. I want people to talk to me, to get to know me, to see and understand. Not just my failures and my struggles, but my successes. I want people to help me if I need it, but I don't want to be reduced to an object of help. I want friends. And if I'm to love the way Jesus teaches, I must learn to befriend the people that I might be biased or prejudiced against. That's the second thing. Now, James concludes, concludes this section with, with the following words. My friends, what good is it to say you have faith when you don't do anything to show that you really have faith? Can that kind of faith save you? If you know someone who doesn't have any clothes or food, you shouldn't just say, I hope all goes well for you. I hope you will be warm and have plenty to eat. What good is it to say this unless you do something to help? The scripture is operating on two very deep levels. On the one hand, James is saying that the kind of, of faith that's merely aspirational cannot save you. The kind of faith that walks past someone in need and does nothing, he says, cannot save you. And he means this in a way that you might not anticipate. It literally cannot save you. Why? Because what does Jesus say about the human condition? He says you claim to be rich. And you claim to be successful. You claim to have everything you need. But you don't know how bad off you are. You're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now that's the words of the Lord Jesus over humanity. And one of the things James is driving at is if the Lord Jesus noticed that you are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, and did nothing, 
faith in that kind of Savior could not save you. But that's not the kind of Savior we have. We have a kind of Savior whose seats were pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. But Paul tells us in his letter to the church in Corinth, you know what our Lord Jesus Christ did? He was kind enough to give up everything he had and become poor so that you could become rich. What is the kind of faith that saves? It's the kind of faith that acknowledges Jesus Christ, the Son of God, actually did something for the poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. He sold everything that he had to give you everything you lack. That's the kind of faith that saves. And what the 39 Articles teach us is that if you have, if you put your trust in that kind of faith that saves, if you put your trust in that, good works will spring out of that seed bed. I'll explain it to you in a very simple way. You have heroes in your life, I'm sure. What have you always tried to do with your heroes? Men might especially get this. You watch football or baseball, maybe as a child. And when you go to the backyard to play baseball or football, are you still, you know, David or Rob or Thomas? No. You're too Tango Bailoa. <laughs> For 30 minutes, that's who you are in the backyard. Because you're, gonna, you're going to seek to emulate your hero. When I used to ride over the Ravenel Bridge before I ate too many donuts and drank too much beer, it was never Rob Sturdy riding over the Ravenel Bridge. It was, it was Lance Armstrong and Al West. <laughs> I think it took just as long for me to get to the top of the Ravenel as it took him to get to the top of an Alp. <laughs> you always emulate who your heroes are. And, and the faith that saves us creates a heroic figure in our life, Jesus Christ. And the very simple thing the articles are getting at is, if we put our faith in, in this story of Jesus Christ, who sold everything he had to give us everything we lack, we will, we will inevitably, and, uh, and even without intention at, at deep levels, emulate him who saved us. That's the faith that saves let me just close with um, three quick things. Here's thing number one. Some of you actually might be deeply involved in this already. There, there are a million different ways to be impoverished, and some of you are neck deep in, in working with impoverished people. And here's, here's the danger for you, and I know it acutely. You can get burned out, whooped, and done by this thing. If you're really sunk into it, you can do that. And so what you need to remember is that Jesus helps impoverished people, but he doesn't do it recklessly. I help impoverished people recklessly. And what I mean by recklessly is Jesus takes time to be alone with the Father. Jesus has urgent issues of impoverished people brought to him, and he says, not right now. Jesus has a man who's dying. Jesus, come help us. In the very next verse in John's Gospel, says that Jesus waited three days. Jesus is not an urgent man, urgently seeking to solve the problems of the world in a reckless way that burns him out. 
So if you are uh, dealing with impoverished people, God bless you. Do it the way Jesus did it. He took time to commune with his father. He is not, uh, his schedule is not dictated by the urgent concerns of the people around him. He took care of himself. That's thing number one. Here's thing number two. If you are a Christian and you're seeking to, uh, to live this out, let me give you a way to think about it. This is a book called Tom Brown at Oxford. The least of the muscular Christians has hold of the old chivalrous and Christian belief. A man's body is given to him to be trained and brought into subjection, then used for the protection of the weak. I love that. You have a mind and you have a body. God gave you that mind and that body. If you're in Christ, He gave you a mind and a body to use your mind and a body the way Jesus used His, which is He gave it away for the weak in the world. And so uh, I'd encourage you to begin to think about what do you have that you can give away, not for the whole world, but for the immediate concerns of your neighborhood and your church and your workplace. Last but not least, for those of you here exploring Christianity, what I want to say to you is uh, when Gandhi was on the way to the church, he knew the right things about the Lord Jesus. And he got confronted by a community who didn't. And you might have had that kind of experience. I hope if you admire the way that Jesus treated sinners and the way that Jesus treated the poor and the vulnerable, and the if you ever admire that and say, I like that Christ, that the Christians are the one I have a problem with. hope you've heard something that, that has encouraged you a little bit. But I also want you to be challenged by it. Because if you've come to admire Jesus in that way, He is already calling you to be part of a community that's an alternative to maybe some of the things you've seen. It's not just the adventure of being saved by the Lord Jesus, it's the adventure of being enlisted by Him to bring about salvation to other people. You're invited into that adventure by grace. All you have to do is accept it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us. That you'd fill us with your spirit. That you would teach us that we can only be clothed in the riches of your grace. But that you have also, each, each of us, given us certain riches that we're meant to give away for the benefit of the world. Speak clearly to us on what you call us to do. Teach us how to love the world as we would have love them ourselves and you love us. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.